And we back from Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network. This is In Search of Sauce, the podcast celebrating writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. This is Brandon Hill. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Hoopla Hill and subscribe to my newsletter with the link in my bio. I'm here today with Ryan and Mickey. Uh, Mickey, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Brandon, I feel like if you're going to do that intro and do We Back, you got to like commit to it more. You got to hit him with like a full We Back! <laughs> I, thought, I thought my We Back was pretty energetic. I think I, I, think I got it. All right. Well, yeah, like Brandon said, We Back! And uh, this is Mickey Hallerback, uh, writer for Central Sauce. And uh, yeah, thanks Superior for- podcast introducer. <laughs> and thanks for tapping back in. And yeah, Ryan Gall, uh, I don't have like a bombastic introduction. <laughs> Because we're recording two hours later than we usually do, and it's not good for me and my little British steep schedule. But yeah, <laughs> thanks for being with us on this second part of our very special series. Yeah, so as Ryan said, this is the second part of our series on the Pulitzer Prizes. Um, in the previous episode of the series, you should definitely go check it out. It's the one on Dam. Uh, we discussed the Pulitzer Prizes' only interaction with hip-hop, in which they awarded Kendrick Lamar the 2018 Prize for Music. Uh, we talked about how the structure of the prize has had to adapt to include black art like hip-hop and jazz, but almost as an afterthought rather than the truly deserved recognition. Uh, we ended by concluding that if the Pulitzer Prize truly wants to be a prize meant to recognize distinguished American music, um, then it can't exclude hip-hop, jazz, or any black art form that is uh, distinctly American. Um, so in a similar way, in this episode, we're going to discuss the Pulitzer Prize for journalism. Um, and we're going to look at the prize in the context of hip-hop journalism and music journalism in general um, as an American award for American journalists covering American music and yet no recognition received for hip-hop or jazz journalists. Um, Also, it wasn't until 1999 uh, that the prize even accepted submissions of news stories that lived exclusively online. Uh, so for at least the journalists me and Mickey will be discussing from 1971 and 1997, respectively, uh, they were not competing with digital journalism. And just a fun fact, the first newspaper to ever go online was the Columbus Dispatch in 1980. So there is a pretty big gap there between, you know, the first news to go online and to be consistently online um, before the Pulitzer widely recognized digital journalism as equivalent to print journalism. Um, The selection process for the Pulitzer Journalism Awards is very similar to the selection process for the Music Awards. So if you want a more detailed breakdown, um, go back, check out that previous episode of our Pulitzer series. Uh, But I'll go ahead and read this quote from Wikipedia about the selection process. So each year, 102 jurors are selected by the Pulitzer Prize Board to serve on 20 separate juries for the 21 award categories. Uh, Most juries consist of five members, except for those of public service, investigative reporting, explanatory reporting, feature writing, and commentary categories, which have seven members. However, all book juries have at least three members. For each award category, a jury makes three nominations. The board selects the winner by majority vote from the nominations or bypasses the nominations and selects a different entry following a 75% majority vote. Uh, The board can also vote to issue no award. And we discussed several notable instances of that within the music category um, that are definitely worth checking out on our previous episode as well. So the winners that we will be discussing today are music journalists who have won across two categories defined as the following. 
Feature writing for distinguished feature writing, giving prime consideration to quality of writing, originality, and concision using any available journalistic tool, and criticism for distinguished criticism using any available journalistic tool. Now, as we think about hip-hop journalism and the reasons Damn was chosen as a winner in the music category, you don't have to dig far into many of the categories in journalism to find a journalist being highlighted for their work in social justice or telling the black experience in America. Um, just recently in 2020, uh, the winner in commentary, Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times, um, was recognized for, and this is a quote, for a sweeping, provocative, and personal essay for the groundbreaking 1619 Project which seeks to place the enslavement of Africans at the center of America's story, prompting public conversation about the nation's founding and evolution. Um, but even before incredible work like that, hip-hop was long serving as a voice of the voiceless in America. Uh, one of my favorite quotes that speaks to this is, in a 1993 interview, uh, when confronted about the content of his music, Ice Cube said, my music shows you a mirror. If you showed me a mirror of myself and my hair was messed up, Show me that mirror enough times, and pretty soon I'd get my hair together. That's exactly what I'm doing, showing you that mirror so you can get your hair together. And I see hip-hop journalists everywhere still holding that mirror and serving that same function that Ice Cube um, talks about in his music. So each of us have researched a previous Pulitzer Prize-winning music journalist with hip-hop in mind, and we're going to present our thoughts and open a discussion. Uh, some of the questions we'll be looking to answer are the backgrounds of the winner, why were they awarded the prize, what is the impact of their work, who does it matter to, and what do we ultimately think about it. Uh, and with that, I'm going to go ahead and pass it off to Mickey, who is going to discuss our first Pulitzer Prize winners um, that are in chronological order. So Mickey, me, and then Ryan, and all chronologically based on the year they were awarded. Yeah, so uh, my guy is Frank Peters. Junior, who was awarded um, the Pulitzer for criticism. Um, yeah, just to start out, we'll go with a quick bio of Frank Peters, Frank L. Peters Jr. Uh, he was born in Springfield, Missouri, October 19th, 1930. He received a BA in English from Drury College in Springfield in 1951. After two years in the Army, he did uh, did graduate work at State University of, of Iowa or Iowa State University in 1953 to 1954 and returned to Springfield to write and edit news for radio stations until 1957. He went to the Arkansas Gazette, Little Rock, Arkansas as a copy editor, but returned to Springfield in 1959 as a feature writer for Springfield newspapers. Peters was managing editor of the Rome Daily American from 1962 to 1964 when he came to St. Louis Dispatch as a copy editor. He had a specific interest in cultural activities, especially music, and was named Post-Dispatch Music Critic on June 24, 1967. Peters and his wife Alba Monciani, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, lived in Webster Groves, Missouri with their two children, Carl and Adrian, until he died of a heart attack in St. Louis in 2007. He was 76. Uh, this is just kind of a random tidbit that I found doing kind of more research to see if I could find any other thing that was written by Frank Peters on a bigger scale besides his articles. And I cannot confirm that this is actually him, but it's in St. Louis, so it might be him. But I found a book written called uh, A Guide to the Architecture of St. Louis. That's written by someone named Frank Peters. I was assuming him and another guy, George McHugh. Um, so that's just kind of a random thing, but I felt like I should mention it since it's writing. Um, as far as, 
uh, why Frank Peters, uh, just his intention with writing overall, firstly, and then why he was given the award. Um, luckily, uh, there was a book written. I was actually worried going into this, firstly, that I, it was going to be difficult to find because it was in 1971. But luckily, uh, a writer by the name of Heinz Dietrich Fischer wrote this book or kind of compiled this book called Distinguished Criticism on Theater, Film, and Television and included a chapter uh, with Frank Peters Jr. And in the chapter, these are all Pulitzer writers that he compiled in this book, um, uh, explained uh, his full uh, intention with his writing as well as why he was chosen for the prize. So I'm going to read directly from this book um, so, so you can get a full sense of who Frank Peters was as a writer and why the committee selected him. Here we go. His main intention as a music critic was to reduce the space between the musicians and the audience. He always tried to discuss what happened musically in a way the readers could understand. Peters, who wrote about 150 music reviews a year, also impressed the Pulitzer Prize jury in 1972, which recommended him as first choice for the award. When early in May 1972, the Pulitzer Criticism Award went to Frank L. Peters Jr. for his music criticism during the preceding year. Again, he was 1971. This award was given for the first time to a non-New York critic. That's really interesting to me. Uh, the jurors in their report of March 10, 1972 had praised his work in this way. Frank Peters, writing from a position of expertise, does more than simply review musical performances. His clear and effective writing explains and examines the field of music in, ter in terms relevant to the musician and to the lay reader. He represents a high example of the type of criticism in a specialized field which newspapers should strive for. Um, yeah, so that's really interesting kind of tidbit to me, particularly that he was the first non-New York critic and you can kind of um when you read his writing especially in i'd say the third piece that i'll discuss of the three that he was uh, nominated for um there's still definitely that clear tie to uh and this is funny especially in the context of hip-hop that like the legitimacy of art criticism exists in new york and even though he's writing about st louis and trying to to kind of like weave it in there he has to like acknowledge on some level that the the you know high art to critique exists there um so it's really interesting the thing that was really interesting and i did not expect this going into someone way back then uh based on kind of the breakdown uh of of the the history of awarding the music prize is i i expected someone in 1971 to be critiquing mainly classical music but the range of these three pieces was what really jumped out to me so we'll just start with the first piece um which was the most unexpected i'd say to me and the piece is entitled the day 32,123 people drove to edwardsville edwardsville being edwardsville illinois um, shout out Edwardsville. Yeah, shout so, out SIUE. I got a lot. Of, I got a lot of friends who went to school there. Word. Uh, yeah, Brandon's from rural Illinois, and we don't let him forget. Um, I call it central, not rural. <laughs> Thank you. I call it rural. Uh, the piece. <laughs> the so the piece uh, was really reporting how this wild uh, music festival went, where it was the most people who had ever attended a concert in the St. Louis area, this time on the Southern Illinois University Edwardsville campus, which is in, again, Edwardsville, Illinois, a small town just north of St. Louis. Uh, the Who were the main attraction who performed. 
Uh, it was pretty straightforward reporting as far as articles go about how they prep for the festival and how they sold tickets and how they handled the event. It didn't have much, you know, storytelling or passion. It was like, let me just break down all of the individual things about this event, presenting the information very much like he was assigned this task and he reported the task, which is a very interesting kind of feeling to get from a piece that's nominated from a Pulitzer. Not any shame, but it's just what it was. Um, he compared the attendance of the event to that of the St. Louis Symphony, which is how he kind of ended up tying in classical, but didn't uh, comment really on what that meant. Again, it was still very much presenting the information he was like, which, you know, it ended up being the the rock concert, obviously, in comparison to what the symphony was bringing in was astronomical. Like the symphony was barely getting enough, you know, tickets to break even while the rock concert was like, you know, out of this world more than they had ever seen for anything, including like and this is in 71, right? 71. Exactly. Um, and they even compared it to like, it, it was again, the biggest concert in the St. Louis area. So like they had a show from the Beatles, which was like only 25,000. And then the who came for this concert and up the Beatles by 7,000 people, <laughs> um, which is like insane. Um, then, so to kind of close the piece and I, me and Ryan talked a little bit beforehand about this weird kind of thing, which I'll let, I'll let him use his term for his section. But the ending of the piece was just kind of odd. Um, he had this weird section where he all of a sudden started writing about a kind of like Richard Nixon wage policy. And it kind of flowed into something with the event, but I couldn't really find how the through line happened. And it was really like this full piece. And then this one short paragraph with its own title. And it was like, this is a super weird thing to bring up. He must have just, it almost felt like he had an editor who was like, you got to discuss the wage policy. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. It just didn't really seem that significant to the piece and very much like thrown in at the end and then like boldened with a headline. Um, and yeah, and then I'll, I'll <laughs> believe it or not, we'll come back to this. Um, so <laughs> uh, let's just go to, to the second piece. I feel like that's kind of the full breakdown of how that one went. So this one, and funny enough, this is the classical piece. Uh, it's called New Rainbow Sound in the Strings. This one right off the bat, instantaneously as I started reading it, it felt way more in Peter's wheelhouse rather than the other one that felt, again, like he was just writing on assignment. Uh, he actually has a really cool opening paragraph where he compares hearing the St. Louis Symphony at the top of their season to hearing one's piano just after it has been tuned. That's a direct quote and starts with the thesis that great conductors make this feeling last for a season's entirety. So that, yeah, that like really stuck out to me of like, okay, this is something as like an art form that he has really processed and has like, not just, you know, from a recording aspect, from a reporting aspect as we were hearing from the first piece he has like this impassioned well-developed idea point of view to where he's like got these kind of metaphors that you can feel him pulling out of his back pocket and just placing into the piece um which you know funny enough this one the way he said that really in a weird way reminded me of yo phillips writing um, just the way that the, the metaphor usage, and I wish I could kind of, I'm just thinking about this right now of mentioning it, but it, I wish I could pull a, a Yo Phillips kind of quote out of my pocket, but he does that a lot in his writing. Um, in, in that metaphorical, it's a metaphor, but it's also poetic at the same time. And it's because of like the, the drive and passion about the art form. Um, 
Yeah, so then uh, Peters goes into uh, write about a few techniques conductors can use to maintain this, then how the orchestra had pre uh, had been previously sounding and what has improved in the new season. Um, again, it's actually super poetic how he analyzes and you hear the love for the craft and even more so the sort of nerdy details behind honing it and uh, it really just jumps off the page. But again, in the weirdest fashion, <laughs> he ends with some weird thing. This time, to be fair, it wasn't with its own title headline. But again, he ends the piece with a weird paragraph about the Nixon wage laws, which I just couldn't understand. How, I mean, he somehow can weaved it in, but it didn't really feel like it connected to the piece. And I'm pretty sure that there is an editor who was like, you have to include this. Thankfully, in the third piece, though, we hear nothing about the Richard Nixon wage laws, and it is all entirely about the art to which he was critiquing. So, but uh, we get another amount of range. So each piece has its own individual topic. The third piece, and this is the one that we'll tie in about um, kind of the New York legitimacy kind of thing. Um, this one's called The Alive Audience Wants to Dance. Um, this one starts in a kind of cheery, that's like the best word I can use to describe, it, but a cheery tone, like he's really excited to talk about how much people in 1971 are eager to go see ballet, which was like a cool thing, I thought. Overall, the piece is a bit more uh, reporting than passion, though, like the first piece, even though, again, he does seem a little bit more enthused about the topic. Uh, he goes into how New York is the mecca, basically, for dance performances, and and he really like kind of like leans into that point he's like it almost it really did feel like on some level and i guess this was kind of you know swayed by my knowledge that he was the first non new york critic but it 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 really did feel like he was kind of like hey just so you know i know what it is like new york is the place <laughs> where it happens but i'm going to talk about st louis so he talks about again how new york is the mecca for dance performances but how a, a cool australian dance company then also a, a Siberian company had come to St. Louis after performing in New York first and how there was big crowds coming to the events. He then compared the beauty of a traditional Belgian ballet piece in New York to a lesser, more modern one that he said included a Jesus, this is a direct quote, a Jesus hippie <laughs> hero, long readings from the ba Bhagavad Gita and very little dancing, <laughs> which was definitely the like, of of all three pieces, it was the the biggest dig of criticism. Um, and what was so he had he had a negative opinion. Of yes, yes, yes. This, this was a the, negative this was a negative opinion of like at the time what was like a mod very modern experimental dance performances. Again, Jesus hippie hero. That description <laughs> sounds cool to me. <laughs> my favorite trio of words put together by Frank Peters Jr. <laughs> I would go to that show. Go oh, no. Exactly. That was my thoughts, too. I was like, oh, this seems like the most interesting thing of any of the things that he's talked about yet. <laughs> <laughs> then he mentioned, uh, though, a similar uh, rock ballet also that had come to St. Louis and also tanked. So then he also kind of critiqued that. Uh, then, But then, though, he... Um, after I read those two parts, I was like, okay, it seems like he's not really a modernist of the time. He's more into the kind of classic. But then he goes on to fully praise um, the seemingly progressive all-black Alvin Ailey dance studio in New York. And at the time, Ailey, uh, Ailey himself, who was the leader of the troupe for his and their modern work. Um, he even mentions, this is a direct quote again, Ailey, with a thoroughly integrated company, is reported to labor under racist pressure toward an all-black troupe with a 
polemical repertory. He then goes on to analyze even more dance pieces in New York while also interspersing more from St. Louis and suggests St. Louis isn't far behind New York in its appreciation for the art form and demand to see it. But again, he went so hard in about how New York is the Mecca at the beginning that it was like, okay, but you know, St. Louis, we're here too. And we're on the come up. Um, he just uh, does finish with the fact that in St. Louis, the reason why it's difficult, it may be difficult in the future to really get to the level of New York is the quality of local dancers is, you know, inherently pretty low because the best dancers are going to go to New York anyway. Um, yeah, so kind of like in conclusion of the three pieces, overall, he seems pretty tapped into what feels like an array of art and he's, you know, critiquing and was nominated for critiquing. A bunch of different styles of art which again i said at this at the beginning but i wasn't expecting that necessarily um for sure and I, I would assume that this is the case for many of the music writers around that period who were nominated classical is still his wheelhouse but as far as uh as like you know the him being the selection to win uh as far as I guess what my preconceived notions were, he did feel at least a bit progressive and he was writing at the time in his 40s. So, you know, kind of when you think about that uh, and, you know, I obviously I wasn't alive in 1971, but it seemed like he had he had a, a little bit, at least for what I would assume the progressive voice was at that time, kind of more leaning in that in that range. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, it seemed like his writing could have been for a pretty wide audience for anyone reading the post dispatch in St. Louis he was writing for. And, you know, while the writing besides maybe a little bit of the stuff in that second piece with piece, which again, felt more passionate, it wasn't really groundbreaking, but to them at that time, you know, I don't know. It really could have been more of a thing. Um, Besides that kind of Yo Phillips quote, especially because two out of the three pieces did not feel in his wheelhouse. Um, besides that section, the style of writing did feel pretty foreign to me as far as like the articles that we read, especially for the ones that we read for the podcast, which wouldn't be in this more reporting style. They're usually obviously very filled with passion, but that kind of uh, consistent reason for that is, again, like the way that they kind of rounded out at the end, it, it didn't feel like they ended with impact. Like it really, it wasn't like it was like he crafted this whole thing going through and then the end, it just kind of was like, like it kind of just fell off and it wasn't this whole like really hitting the conclusion as hard as the thesis, I guess is the best way to say it. Um yeah, it's it, I if I had to describe it, it's just like uh information-based writing with a little flavor inserted whenever he kind of felt like it and felt inspired. Um but it was never the core of the piece. Um there weren't too long of reads, I guess. That was cool <laughs> for me for stuff that, you know, uh, but they they were pretty easy to get through, so it was really concise, so maybe that was kind of part of the style of criticism back then. It wasn't too like exploratory. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty much it. I think, uh, I would not be necessarily that intrigued to go into a lot more of Frank Peter's writing because of the style. <laughs> um, like I don't, I don't anticipate myself, uh, going, doing a deep dive and then bringing a random Frank Peter's piece to our future, you know, regular scheduled programming. But, <laughs> um, it was definitely, you know, an interesting case study. Um, and it was cool that, I mean, definitely the biggest moment was that, 
I mean, I'm sure you can hear it in my voice, was that when he compared um, and ma- did that metaphor at the beginning of the classical piece, because it really did remind me of a quality of writing that I like about things that we do regularly cover. Um, so it was cool to see that back then. But um, yeah, I mean, it's in 1971, but if that's the standard, there's so many pieces that we have brought to the podcast from the modern day that should also definitely have Pulitzers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, so you i mean so you would wait you go you want to go first ryan you had something i just want to say it's so weird how the definition of a great article or an article that i would consider an amazing or something worthy of awarding is so different for back then and now like for me now um i guess it might just be my sensibilities but i don't really get that like uh that feeling from just pure reporting like straight here are the facts of a situation, and I find that unless really it's some strange. unless it's some like really groundbreaking yeah. investi- investigative report. Exactly, of some this kind, doesn't feel right? like that, right? It's, right. It seems like a, a like the first one's like a concept report. Yeah, and so which is that a cool one... it's a cool situation. Like, yeah, so many people go to this place, but you said that it's more reporting on none of the kind of implications of that. That that's way more interesting to me, and like right, so the, much it... is there, but it never goes through that barrier. And I went, I, it makes me curious, like what the runners-up were. I know you probably yeah. didn't go that far into it, but uh, <laughs> I'd like to read the others and just see, like, what was the what was the standard at the time? Like, what were people doing? Was yeah. it frowned upon to go too far from, like, just the facts? Was I it, mean, was, even though you know, I didn't dig that deep into the other nominees, I mean, just by the fact that he won, it, it, that had to have been the standard. But I wholeheartedly, that first piece, when I, like, read at least the initial kind of intro and realized what it was about, I was like, oh, man. Like, this is riddled with potential. Like, did he do, like, on-site reporting with, like, all of the people taking drugs at the Who concert? Because, like, I want to read about that for (laughs) sure. Like, the 32,000 people. He did, oh, I didn't mention this. He did mention, that was, like, I, like, got excited for a second because he did mention there was, like, people in tents that were, like, the taking care of people on acid tents that I've seen in documentaries about things like Woodstock and stuff. But then he was just basically mentioning that they were there and then moved on. So <laughs> it was, again, this kind of, yeah, it was, it did make me wonder if, like, the standard for kind of, um, you know, local-based journalism was, like, you report the story and the facts of it, and if if you feel so inclined and it really is necessary, we won't cut if you maybe insert a few little pieces of your point of view or your metaphors. We will allow a few, but not too many. It should all be based in reporting. Which is just a yeah. really well. That definitely, that definitely is much more the standard, um, and especially because at this time too, n- this none of his stories would have ever been considered for digital. You know, they weren't doing digital back then. Um, so a big limiter on journalism back then is literally column inches, right? Like how much space, how much physical space do you have to put the story in the newspaper? Um, and when it comes to like old newspaper business models, space is money, right? Like space is advertising space. Um, so it definitely lends to a more condensed format. Yeah. I still feel like, you know, because again, we're talking about what is supposed to be to the highest tier of journalism. So it didn't feel like Frank Peters was necessarily finessing his space that much either. And I, I mean, I feel like I'm driving a little bit, but it's it's not really because it's with my <laughs> modern perspective of what I'm used to yeah. reading. But it's like, 
I just, you know, I, I would ho- have hoped that it would be even, you know, the pieces were short, but they weren't like tiny. Like there was like a lot of paragraphs and I felt like there was a lot of details that he included that could have been left out and turned into more interesting tidbits, especially with that festival piece. Could you yeah. imagine reading a piece like this today on any website that you read often? Oh, I could think? I could imagine reading a, a like reporting piece of it, but I didn't I wouldn't finish the piece. Like right. I would get like three paragraphs in and like a spe- like I definitely if I saw that same headline it was like the most people that ever attended this event, blah 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 blah. Some big band was headlining, this was the the topic we're going into. I could I could definitely see some semblance of like a reporting based piece on that. But I yeah. don't think that, like, especially in the digital age, because it's not that same thing that Brandon was talking about, I don't think there's any way that a piece gets published with just that very, like, this is what happened and no details. <laughs> yeah, it feels like the bare bones of a piece, isn't it? Yeah, so as far as information goes, too, like, you know, what do you think his audience is? Because like you said, if you're if it's not, like, super informative like that and it's not already a topic you're interested in, you kind of phase it out. Um, so this is one thing I noticed with my guy too, obviously that I'll get into more detail, but like who, who are the people you think were reading his stuff and going like, this dude is bang on, like this guy is killing it. Like who, who are those, like, who's that audience? Right. Well, that's like such a hard question to answer because like, I have no perspective on 1971, but Mm -hmm. like, so it, it, and it's like all about like what a preconceived notion of like the conservatism of the time then was versus now. But if you think about it, it's like early seventies is like on the, you know, tail end of the burst of the hippie movement. So it's like, um, and you know, he is covering again with that festival, a topic that's inherent to that side of things. And he's talking about modern dance things. Um, I, I also, why that's really tough to answer is cause like, you know, the difference of like who's actually sitting down and reading a newspaper then and the age range of that versus now is hard to quantify in my head. But, it was much more uh, much more broad, much more spread out. Like right. young people were reading papers, middle-aged people were reading papers. And that makes sense um, with the output because of the range of things that he's critiquing. So I think like, you know, it, but as far as like who is at, not just like who is reading him, I feel like it, he was definitely because of the range writing for a broad spectrum of ages. But as far as who is like, oh, this is that dude. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's clearly, funny. clearly it's... very legitimate journalism people. I don't know. But I don't know yeah, like, I wonder, who that is. I wonder if it's more about like this, the time where like... Um... I'm not sure but people who read the newspaper to see like oh this happened right like that's what people pick up the newspaper expecting is like i want to know what happened in the world and maybe that's more what it is um in 71 that was like walter cronkite right or no or am i like totally have no historical understanding of like what was tv stuff because it's still in i would assume in that era it hasn't hadn't transitioned to like people more have it was very like this is what is happening in the world and not this is this is how i feel about it Um, yeah it's funny less less opinion based kind of stuff but to label it as criticism by the pulitzers right yeah rather because there is a reporting section right brendan uh yeah yeah there's i mean there's several different reporting there's investigative reporting um commentary yeah there's a bunch of like raw reporting 
areas you can win in. So let's give a random percentage. Out of those three pieces, what percentage of them would you say with actual music criticism? Oh, well, that again, that's going to be based on the definition of what I would view music criticism as today rather than what it was in 71. So I can only answer that way. So what percentage of the three pieces as a whole was like mm-hmm. critique of music? Yeah, Definitely, or any kind of critique. <laughs> yeah, like zero of the first piece. <laughs> mm. um, the second piece was like a third or less. And then the, the third piece... Well, it's not about music specifically. There was like little mentionings of things, but I'll but keep it in the categories. It's critique of art. So, of the dance, actually, maybe that had the most. Hmm, that was like almost half. Critique. Right. The dance piece was like actually the most leaning into critique. Um. Yeah. So, like, for overall, it was like maybe. A, thir- a third of one out of the three pieces worth was criticism, I'd say, around there. Of what so, I view it, yeah. I've, what I would view like actual art criticism would be in my modern context. That's interesting. But criticism is difficult. I don't think that's a definition that's changed too much because criticism in some inherent sense is giving your perspective, your yeah. view on something. Yeah whether it's a positive you're looking at it with scrutiny right right you'd so, think that. you think it had yeah. it wouldn't have changed yeah unless like we didn't know uh-huh. <laughs> none of us are alive so <laughs> yeah yeah um we'd definitely love to hear in the comments section from someone who was like very into music critiques in 1971 let us know what's up if there's any random person who knows <laughs> yeah if you were reading his work if you're reading frank's work at the time <laughs> there's the one random person know. who's listening to our podcast is, who is innately familiar with the work of frank peters jr let us know if this was the standard <laughs> if you thought he was that dude yeah i do have before before moving on to my section, there are two things that I want to point out um, because I notice a pattern in them uh, with the context I have for the guy I researched. Um, and the first one is in the description of why he won the prize. They said his clear and effective writing explains and examines the field of music in terms relevant to the musician and to the lay reader, right? So he's being recognized for his ability to like, um, they're saying that this reporting, this writing is accessible by people who are more than just professionals. But at the same time, you know, as we've also discussed, it seems like it only appeals to professionals. Um, so there's definitely a sense of, you know, what do you consider a lay person? Um, and who does this reporting matter to at all? Right? Like, who is it? Is it strictly industry people? Or is this information that the average, um, that they're recognizing him for the accessibility to the average person? Um, but to an average person who's like working in St. Louis, um, does this matter to them huh, at wait, all that so, it's even okay, accessible? Okay, that's actually the question you were asking earlier and <laughs> the answer you were looking for. Now I get it. So, okay, so yeah, like I don't, I do think that Frank Peter's writing was not targeted necessarily at like legitimate people within art solely at all. Like I do feel like it was informationally, it was definitely mm-hmm. because again, and you have to think of it in the context of digital not existing at all. Like access to the information is only coming here. So like with that said, I, I think definitely that like 
there was a clear like tonality to it where it was like there was definitely like you know professional musician-y kind of writing especially in the classical stuff but there was never too much of a dive into it to where it was like unreadable for someone who has no access to that space um so yeah i definitely i definitely think he was he was intentionally appealing to a, a range from professional to to the average person who's reading the newspaper yeah and and then the second thing um is so as we've described the writing is sort of dry very informative um, so he's not being recognized for his poeticism or his evocative writing. Um, so looking at the work as a whole, he was recognized for. I noticed that um, it seems like he is challenging the idea of what is considered like central to high art, quote unquote. Um, and that's that's I that pattern stands out to me because it's something I also noticed in my guy as well. Um, so as far as him seeming to you know question or challenge the um, the central New York and say, you know, like, get outside your comfort zone, like get outside the sphere of what's accepted. Um, St. Louis is also doing or coming up on new stuff, which he was right. I mean, he was ahead of his time as we're going to get into my guy, even um, at one point in his career works with the St. Louis uh, Symphony Orchestra. And one of the pieces that he writes is a profile on the longtime uh, conductor of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, which even I guess I'm getting ahead of myself here, but um, so my guy, he does, a, he does a profile on the conductor of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra as he's leaving to go to Washington, and one of the things he points out that this guy in St. Louis was doing so effectively um, was bringing 20th century American classical compositions to the symphony um, as opposed to, you know, other high art symphonies focusing on Eurocentric and European compositions. So St. Louis, you know, even... Um, 20 years later, 30 years later, um, was still like breaking ground for what is considered, you know, American, like what is valuable American classical music. Is that good? I'll go ahead and go into my guy now. All right. So I had Tim Page, um, Pulitzer Prize winner for criticism in 1997 for his, this is their description, for his lucid and illuminating music criticism. And he is a classical music critic for the Washington Post. Um, at the time of his award. So something to point out is, you know, lucid means expressed clearly and easy to understand. Um, and illuminating means it shines a light on, right? So they're recognizing him for um, easy, easily accessible writing that shines light on something that you would not otherwise be aware of without the easily you know, accessibility of his writing, um, which is very similar to what they recognized in uh, your guy, Mickey. So to give a brief biography on Tim Page, because this dude actually had a really interesting life. Um, and my biography section might be a little longer than anybody else's, um, but he really has some like interesting stuff going on in his life. So this is directly from the Pulitzer biography. Um, Tim Page has been the chief classical music critic for the Washington Post since 1995. Before that, he was the chief music critic for Newsday and New York Newsday, uh, from 1987 to 1995, and a regular contributor to the New York Times from 1982 to 1987. He's the author and or editor of eight books, including The Glenn Gold Reader, William Capel, Selected Letters of Virgil Thompson, The Diaries of Don Powell, and a collection of criticism, Music from the Road, Views and Reviews, 1978 to 1992. He is presently at work on the first biography of Don Powell, um, who also, when we talk about like the impact of these writers, um, apparently, Page really brought this writer, Don Powell, um, who was a very overlooked literature writer, um, and he brought him sort of into the center of a lot of conversations. Um, Page was born 
1954, and he grew up in Storrs, Connecticut, where he was the subject of a celebrated short documentary film, A Day with Timmy Page. He is a graduate of Columbia University and studied music at the Tanglewood Music Center and the Maine's College of Music. Over the course of his career, Page has also done a stint as a cocktail pianist, played keyboards, and composed for his own rock band, Dover Beach, served as the host of New, Old, and Unexpected, a daily program on WNYC-FM, where he presented hundreds of radio premieres and helped to found Catalyst, a contemporary music label for BMG Classics, among many other activities. Um, so right off the bat, this dude's resume is, like, crazy impressive. Um, it's especially worth pointing out that while the prize is a recognition of his written work, the Pulitzer is also nodding to a range of multimedia work from video uh, to radio, um, as well as his own capabilities as a musician. Also worth noting, um, he is an alumni of Columbia University who hosts the prizes. Fun fact, put a little pen in that. Um, he comes from an academic familial background. His mother was a journalist and his father was a psychology professor, uh, and his father has that blue link on Wikipedia. Um, so he does, he comes from a family of some repute. He was considered a bit of a child prodigy in music and film. Um, at just 13 years old, that mini documentary, A Day with Timmy Page, um, was a documentary about him as a 13-year-old. And so his, his association with being considered a child prodigy really informs his uh, perspective on classical music um, because he's very critical of the idea of child prodigies, which is a big thing in classical music. In his farewell piece at the Washington Post, he wrote, The prodigy syndrome which was already an annoyance in 1995, has become a major ill. I mistrust the cute kid brigade for two principal reasons. It is deeply exploitative and often ruinous to young artists, and it transforms age, which after all provides a natural accumulation of musical and personal experience, into a liability for more seasoned players. And one of the pieces listed in his Pulitzer recognition, uh, Shine Brief Candle Film Explores a Piano Prodigy's Madness, um, is a scathing critique of the child prodigy culture within classical music. And it was one of my favorite pieces um, that he was listed as a winner for. So another thing is that he has been open about struggling with depression throughout his life, uh, saying, my depression arrived like a Midwestern summer thunderstorm, clouds moving in slowly, balletically, in strange air and mustard light. Everything I re read, watched, and listened to was unrelievably gloomy, and this was having its effect. And then later in his life, he was also diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, uh, which is an autism spectrum disorder characterized by significant difficulties in social interaction and nonverbal communication, along with restricted and repetitive patterns of behavior and interest. Uh, he wrote a memoir, Parallel Play, about his experience with Asperger's, saying, I wouldn't wish the condition on anybody. I've spent too much of my life isolated, unhappy, and conflicted. Yet I am also convinced that many of the things I've done were accomplished not despite my Asperger's syndrome, but because of it. And in a review for the New York Times, Janet Maslin wrote that the book is not about Asperger's, but is intensified by the peculiar nature of Mr. Page's Asperger-governed perceptions. Tirelessly logical, sometimes agonizingly so, he lives life in an extra dimension with a sense of time that irrevocably links past and present, living and dead, ardent love affairs, and broken ones. So... You know, very interesting background. There's a, a lot of things that he sort of has overcome um, personally with mental health as far as like the depression and the Asperger's. Um, and so now just a bit on sort of summing up their writing. Anthony Tomasini, the chief music critic for The New York Times, has praised Page's criticism for its extensive knowledge of cultural history, 
especially literature. And I noticed that a lot when it comes to cultural history. Um, he brings lots of it into the music that he's writing about. And I enjoyed that. Um, the instincts and news sense of a sharp beat reporter, the skills of a good storyteller, infectiousness, inquisitiveness, immunity to dogma, that's important, and an always running pomposity detector. So to summarize his work, Page is primarily being recognized for criticism of live classical music performances. Uh, he places a lot of value on what he calls radicalism in composition, and that the 20th century American classical music is forward-thinking and contrary to popular belief in the field, not inferior to older Eurocentric styles. Uh, he writes with a surprising dose of first person and even some traces of gonzo reporting, especially in his leads, which are almost always captivating. Uh, he really hooks you, like, right at most of his stories. Um, Page writes about classical music, but has also shown some recognition for the qualities of non-classical music, writing in his 1999 Farewell to the Washington Post. From the beginning of my career, it had been my hope to infuse some of the passion, elusiveness, and occasional irreverence I found in the best writing about jazz and rock back into the realm of classical music. Everything has always reminded me of everything else anyway, and I saw no reason why a high art was necessarily compelled to be an unrelentingly solemn one. Like so many writers of my generation, I owed an enormous debt to the work of Thomas Pynchon, who proved conclusively that there was room for Three Stooges-style silliness in one paragraph and sonorous majesty in the next. Uh, this, then, is what I wanted to approximate in my own writing. So this quote is a really great peek about what he thought about his own writing and what he thought about his own value. Um, and I want to point out irreverence as an interesting word choice, because irreverence means a lack of respect for people and things that are generally taken seriously. So I take that as an admiration that non-classical music journalism isn't confined by elitism, um, and he seeks to bring that flavor into classical music writing. I was a bit surprised throughout the readings uh, how he actually managed to make me laugh, and not just for the humor, but through the vivid descriptions that he used with humor. So from his piece, The Age of Dissonance, Can You Handle These Modern Classical Works? Uh, this is a quote. From the slashing outline of the D minor triad that opens the opera, rather as a punch in the face might be said to open a dialogue, to the triumphant, frazzled, obsessively reiterated C major chord that concludes the slaughter 80 psychotic minutes later, Electra is a study in overkill. Which is great writing. Like, that's funny. It's descriptive. It's, it's unique. You know, it feels like something that only he would write. Um, it, his writing sort of gives me the feeling like if I was in a crowd at one of these symphonies, I would be in the crowd just in awe of some beautiful music composition while he was analyzing errors I couldn't even hear, right? You know, like when um, you're watching an Olympic figure skater and you're like, wow, this is so beautiful. And the announcer's like, that critical mistake is going to cost him big time. And you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, but I think it, it is often easy for us to brush off this kind of cri criticism as stuffy or elitist. Um, but that's not really fair of us to assume either. In his farewell to the Washington Post piece, um, I like how he viewed his work looking back. He writes, I hope I've never been presumptuous enough to pretend I had any sort of final word on a concert. I've always considered my job one of public rumination rather than the carving of tablets. So he does bring um, a, a lot of value to his perspective, but he doesn't hold himself back by thinking that his perspective is definitive. So now onto the impact of his work. Um, to my observation, he doesn't glorify the classical works of the past with an, oh, real music is dying hot take. Um, even with classical works, it seems like he makes an effort 
to understand how modern compositions should be acknowledged for their own merits and not always compared to a hypothetical golden age of music long past. And he, like I said, he frequently admires uh, music for its radical components. And although he champions the quality of creators that are out there, his stance on the industry economics are more varied. Um, in The Way the Music Dies, Classical Recordings Downward Spile, which seems actually like a piece that we could have discussed on the podcast. Like, there's a lot of intricacies um, to the reporting, and to, I enjoyed uh, the way that he presented it. He does a fantastic job of painting the economics that are killing the recording industry for classical music, mainly that it's cheaper to reproduce old recordings than to make new ones, and new composers must always compete with past geniuses. Yet, even with a pessimistic take on the life of classical recordings, he still believes that they will outlive popular music. Combined with the title of the piece, The Way Music Dies, uh, conflating the death of music with the decline of classical recordings, um, I do get a bit of an elitist overtone with what he thinks about classical music, right? As if, as if classical music dies, all music is, you know, we're going to live in darkness or something. So what does the work matter? Who does the work matter to? Um, while the Pulitzer Prize calls his work lucid and illuminating, the jargon is pretty heavy. Um, there's some really dense portions that are hard to understand without, I feel like, having some context. However, he at least attempts to tie things together with contemporary analogies that do make the pieces easier to read um, if I do feel somewhat like some of it does go over my head. Uh, so for an example, from the lead to Philadelphia taking its sweet old time, uh, the Philadelphia Orchestra is widely and correctly perceived as the aristocrat among American orchestras. The Cleveland Orchestra may be more perfect, one balanced, synchronized, infinitely adaptable organism from top to bottom, and Chicago may have more muscle, ferocious virtuosity, and a brass section that could have done the job at Jericho, but Philadelphia, caloric, sumptuously blended, and refreshingly old world, takes the prize for elegance and sheer sonic luster. In a world of lean cuisine, the Philadelphia Orchestra is still pure butterfat. Um, and I, one thing I think to be said about hip-hop writing is that hip-hop writing, I believe, is often extremely lucid, right? It speaks to life in a way that's really easy for anyone to understand um, because it doesn't bog itself down with, you know, really intensive jargon. Um, so if we're recognizing music journalists for their lucidity and for shining light on things that otherwise would not be seen, um, that to me is a spot-on description of hip-hop journalism. So mostly his work seems of great importance to the classical music community, uh, but not much to the layman or average consumer. He branches into some of the economics of the industry, make his perspective valuable within the industry, but again, you know, it's not reaching a wider American audience, uh, or at least not an audience that I would define as quintessentially American. Um, a very clear exception to that, however, is the I Hear a Symphony piece, which is great. Like, if you're going to pick one of his pieces to read, make it this one. Um, directed at a broad audience about defining a symphony and its cultural context to Americans and told in an entertaining mix of gonzo and first person, this piece could have a real impact on a revival of interest in classical music to a broader population. The piece even ends with a little section on where to go to see a free performance and some simple breakdowns of terms and jargon to get you started. Um, it got me interested in classical music. You know, he, he has a very descriptive, very strong voice throughout the piece, um, that shines on also his really adept analysis of how symphony, symphonies have evolved over time, especially in America. And uh, so I was really surprised to see his use of first person in The Age of Dissonance, Can You Handle These Modern Classical Works, and even some gonzo attributes uh, in The Spirit of St. Louis, Bound for Washington, Leonard Slatkin, Ends and Era, which is the one I talked about where he is profiling 
um, Leonard Slotkin, who was the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra composer, or conductor, sorry, and in his descriptions of um, I Hear a Symphony as well. So this guy, I feel like, was a good writer. You know, where, where you were talking about the past one was very dry and very informative and reporting. Um, Page is a good writer, and he's got lots of great structures here. He also recognizes popular music, and he takes its conventions into consideration in his opinions of classical compositions. Um, in The Age of Dissonance, he writes, The shock have worn off of some once notorious pieces. In 1927, George Antheil's Ballet Mechanique appalled traditionalists with its use of sirens, car horns, and multiple pianos. Today, in the era of computer sampling, this seems little more than a collection of gimmicks, and the work barely holds our interest. So a composition once acknowledged for its unconventional use of sound is no longer daring because he's aware of the capabilities of electronic producing. Uh, he writes about recorded music, but the, also at this time, the Pulitzer wasn't recognizing recorded music as on par with performed music in the music category. Um, Page even specifically refers to the music prize as an award in composition, even though that wasn't its technical definition. That was, as we discussed in the last, last episode, basically what it was. Um, and it seems he thinks that certain cultural critiques are either lazy, boring, or secondary to the qualities he points out, although he does include the critiques. Uh, for example, in Domingo's debut, A Capital Gain, a review of an opera, he writes, the action is set in Brazil, much of it in a castle peopled by early European settlers who are, however, surrounded by bands of hostile savages. The PC crowd, those interesting folks who go into frost of indignation over old Tarzan movies, will hate all of this, of course, but even an unreconstructed imperialist might have some difficulties following the logic of the climax. Uh, so his main issue here seems to be with the plot and not with the racism. Um, and while he mentions that in the critique, he practically scoffs at it and sort of undermines the critique himself. Um, as far as some really good things I think he did really well, uh, Page's critique of Fire Water Paper, a composition for the 20th anniversary of the ending of the Vietnam War, reminded me of Andre Guy's critique of Judas and the Black Messiah's soundtrack. While he acknowledges the quality of the composition, and he goes on and on about how good the music is, he also says, still there is a central problem. Firewater paper ultimately seems grossly insufficient to its purpose. Indeed, I'm not sure what that purpose was intended to be other than to encourage some spurious healing process. I was never convinced that Goldenthal, the composer, had any real ideas about the Vietnam War, save that it was tragic and that it is over. I was often reminded of one of those Newsweekly articles on controversial subjects that strive so mightily to offend neither left nor right that they end up sweeping all of their readers into some weird quasi-lobotomized DMZ. I learned nothing new about Vietnam from Goldenthal's piece. Much more to the point, I felt nothing new about Vietnam. Um, so he really gets into like how music feels and what it means to the culture, um, historically. And then in the conclusion of that same piece, he says... Finally, I'm not at all convinced that the Vietnam Veterans Memorial is crying out for music by Goldenthal or anyone else. On the contrary, it should be approached silently, humbly, in a grave and dignified confusion. It has its own music made up of time, wind, and old sorrow. Um, on the, the Spirit of St. Louis piece, Bound for Washington, about Leonard Slotkin, I mean, this is a truly fantastic profile as well. It does a really good job of telling me why I should care about this person. Uh, it combines the first-person storytelling using specific scenes to tell a complete story with a comprehensive 
contextual knowledge of not just Leonard Slatkin, but of the reverberations across the industry that he had, mainly that he brought contemporary classical music to a highly respected level within St. Louis, and then again um, through Page's writing through the wider classical community. So again, you know, we see Page's appreciation of 20th century music standing out at a time where, um, you know, most people believe that the only value to classical music was that Eurocentric repetition. Um, I also like the way he personifies music indirectly. He doesn't just come out and assign human characteristics in a standout way, but he takes it as implied that music is alive and human. In the Leonard Slatkin piece, he writes, the program closed with an American in Paris, Gershwin's brass breezy romp in which the new world meets the old and both rather enjoy the encounter, which is, I think, very evocative writing. So, questions, comments, well, concerns? Uh, <laughs> if, first and <laughs> foremost, it feels very night and day from my guy. Yeah, I was about to say, like, it's, it's much more in the realm of what we consider to yeah. be music criticism or even just, like, music journalism. It's much more recognizable for us. But even though they're so different, I think there are also very consistent through lines. Um, in the fact that they're being recognized for making their writing accessible to everyone. Um, and while we can argue yeah. whether or not Page seem like it. does that completely, um, that's still what they're being recognized for. And that the I Hear a Symphony piece alone on its own merit, I think is enough to recognize him um, for the accessibility of his writing. Because that piece was genuinely like, just it makes classical music sound interesting. It's like so interesting. I think it's... Um, it- it goes into my, my initial thought is that the qualifications for how accessible it is have definitely changed based on who is reading this type of criticism that would be worthy in the judging sense of the Pulitzer. So like Frank Peters had to actually, you know, write for a wider range of people while as your guy, I think he doesn't really, he has to make it accessible, but not as to like your average, not really. He's not, doesn't have to, even in those qualifications, appeal to the totally average person who doesn't listen to classical music at all. Yeah, I, I would definitely say that the bulk of his writing, um, especially when he gets into like industry economics um, and even just in the style that he critiques, he almost critiques like he has an assumption that you know where he's critiquing from, right? Like he'll compare a piece saying, oh, like this this sonata was not nearly as daring as Gershwin's, you know, 1962, you know, whatever um, that I'm paraphrasing here. But um, he does critique in that style. But then, like I said, he does kind of try to tie it together with understood analogies, um, which at least I do think shows that he's making an effort to appeal to um I, like, I really audience. liked that thing that you said uh, about his kind of walking away from the Washington Post thing about the the writer who inspired him, who said you can have one paragraph of, of you know, very serious stuff and then another of kind of goofier stuff. Um, and that he channeled that kind of like dichotomy into his own stuff. Uh, I think that that's a really cool thing that I is something I personally value in a lot of writing is the, you know, the ability to, you know, it really is about, you know, encapsulating the entirety of the human experience and reading about a big profile uh, on someone or something or some, you know, body of work. Uh, and it, it, se- it really does seem like with all of your descriptions that he, he really made a point to make sure he always did that and went in and out of like the inner kind of nerdier, gr- nitty gritty details to like a kind of funny commentary 
um, or at least a, a cheekier commentary. Um, yeah, yeah. Che- I think cheeky is definitely a good word for it because, um, as I mentioned with that one critique of the uh, the play with uh, where he referred to um, the PC people, you know, being you know like in a very sort of demeaning way. Um, sure. He definitely cheeky is a good word for it because he's not always safe in when he tries to be funny, um, and he definitely lets. I think some of his personal thoughts on things outside of the piece into the piece. Um, he actually, he had another um, description where he called a, a composition or a symphony um, as boring as white guilt and Forrest Gump, <laughs> which is, you know, how do you take that? Right. But in, in, in commentary like that, you see where he's bringing perspectives and thoughts, uh, personal thoughts and perspectives into his criticism. Which is interesting because, you know, Frank Peters just seemed very to the point. Yeah. It's a, well, this is like a weird thing to bring. I, I watched the um, the Peter Rosenberg drink champs today. <laughs> Not something I thought I'd be talking about in this particular podcast episode. But he talked about how, like, he wouldn't get to, you know, there are things that he looks back on that he regrets. But that how he wouldn't get to the the you know, tier of his industry that he's at without having, I mean, on some level, he didn't, I don't think he said bravery, but it was what he was alluding to the bravery to like, you know, in these Mm -hmm. distinct moments to like be overtly critical in that type of way. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm also sure that these, this cheeky humor um, probably went over a lot better in 1997 um, than what it does now looking back. But, but also, for the most part, you know, aside from those two um, comments that I mentioned, most of his humor lands. Most of it, even today, is still like, oh, like, that's kind of amusing or kind yeah, of the funny. the idea of balancing serious stuff with humor links very well to who I chose. But um, it's fun seeing that trend, though, isn't it? Like, <laughs> just uh, be more playful and liberal with your language as you go further through the decades. Um yeah, like the the difference in twenty five plus years between Mickey's pick and Brandon's pick Stark. is insane, isn't it? It's like, oh, and I wonder how much of that is reflective of the times, or how much of it is reflective of the particular jury they got. Because remember last week, that's one thing we really focused on is like how much the jury they choose is dependent on who's in the win, jury. Right? Yeah, but um, yeah, and it's difficult to know if you compare it to what we know about the music award. We talk about what was going on in hip-hop in 2017. We can pretty much say Damn was very reflective of what people were listening to, right? Very, very huge, successful album. Um, but it's difficult to know for us, like, if in classical music, those winners were really what people were talking about at the time. And, yeah, again, for this, it's difficult to know, like, back in, 90, like, back in 90, uh, 97, in 71, if Frank, Frank Peter Jr.'s his, his work was very reflective of what people were doing, or just what those particular people in the room happen to like, which I think is interesting. Or if, it, like, I wonder if, basically what it boils down to, if Tim Page was doing what he was doing 20 years previous, what would the reaction be? And I find that interesting. How much has it really changed? Oh. Yeah, I think, well, I think for one thing, I think that the strong voice that he writes with, um, like we kind of talked about with Frank, would not really, would not really have, like, would have, it probably would have made you more of a, um, I'm sure there's a really, really good 1970s, like, insult, like a, a a (laughs) floofer, like, I don't know, like, someone who, someone who, like, um, 
is like really outside of the box and like radical and uh, oh, like you can't take them seriously uh, because well, they're I'm, not within I'm, the. There's I'm a word never, for it. I'm trying to flapper not a flapper. That, either, but that was really a word that they used back then. Both of those. Um, I feel like what you're saying though reminds me of like beat poetry <laughs> kind of thing. Like it would have been. I, I mean, what year is like the beat poetry era? Is that the '60s? No, or that's that might be the '70s. Or am I tripping? Like Allen Ginsberg, you guys don't know Allen Ginsberg. I don't know off top. Beat poetry, Jack Kerouac. He's like kind of in the off the beat scene. But yeah, like I mean, the kind of more abrasive, artsier stuff. But like definitely being willing to say the kind of like more intensely, you know, I don't know about shocking, but you know, impactful thing like that. Um, but yeah, like he wouldn't mm. have been allowed within the like journalism field to say things the way that he was saying in a lot of the quotes. Like he he would have been like in to do it in the exact same way he would have been in like a off more artsy like underground kind of deal right. that something that he would have been you know been difficult to get paid for by an institution like he would have had to just publish like books for a very select kind of art crowd I feel like <laughs> which he did right I mean he wrote hella books too um, and that's where when we're talking about like what how much are these winners a reflection of like what was going on at the times. Um, of course, you know, I don't have the context of having been cognizant of 1997. Um, but just looking at his resume and seeing, you know, where he went after the Washington Post um, and, you know, where he continued to go, like he has remained an extremely like relevant figure in um, classical music, like extremely relevant. So I, I do think that, you know, that that shows some indication of like, at the very least, people in the industry were paying attention. Cool. You ready to move on to my pick? Yeah, yep. Um, before you go on, I'll just recap uh, basically why, what this contextualizes to when we talk about hip-hop. Um, and basically that I believe he was recognized for, uh, this guy was recognized for the quality of his writing, because it, like I said, very good writing, um, but also recognized, I think, for um, challenging, you know, typical ideas and conventions about classical music um, with the insertion of um, the contemporary music. Although he does have sort of a pessimistic take on it, um, that even though he believes that it's worth life, that it is dying and that it is dragging all of music down with it. Cool, cool. Okay, so from 97 to 2008, to uh, another writer for the Washington Post, who I believe is still at the Washington Post right now, and uh, someone who can continues that trend of just getting funnier as things go on, as time goes on, just like... Uh, being more free of the comedy in the um, in the writing, so my uh, my guy is Gene Weingarten, and all of them are guys, by the way. No women have won uh, a Pulitzer for music criticism. All white guys too, even even among the exactly, um, yeah. the winners that we did not select. Yeah, exactly. That's and, definitely uh, yeah, detailed. So Gene Weingarten won for feature writing, so not criticism this time for one feature in two thousand eight, like I considered, and is generally considered to be one of the best writers in America from what I read from people who have interviewed him or just talked about him generally and it helps that he won another Pulitzer for feature writing two years after that in 2010 but that one wasn't about music so we'll focus on this one um it was what was it about I think it was following uh, another like family it's like some following some kind of family I forget what it is but it was more of a um if it was a segment on Charlie's Human, What's Good, it would be a live section. Oh. 
like a human interest story. Yeah, that, thank you, Char- that, thank you, Nikki. <laughs> that's the that's the that's the word. Anyway, so um, Gene spent most of his long career as a humor columnist for the Washington Post. So he was literally essentially oh, a journalist comedian kind of guy. And um, yeah, so to get and I think my bio for him is going to be very different from what these guys have done because I think it's better to get a sense of his personality and to get a sense of what people say about him. And I think that's more vital to the context of the piece that he won for. So uh, Tom Bartlett from the Washingtonian said this about him. Quote, You might wonder why the best writer in American journalism would have fake poop as his Twitter icon or spent an inordinate amount of time making prank phone calls or concern himself with monkey sex, fake sneezes or bacon taped to cats. As he once put it in a column, I mostly write about underpants. <laughs> Wine Garson is not a horrible person, but there may be something wrong with him. <laughs> Unquote. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to receive such a glowing recommendation yeah, from Yeah, so that's in a huge profile about Weingarten, so I recommend reading that. It's in the Washingtonian. Um, yeah, but despite his weirdness, Weingarten is described as unbelievably dedicated to the craft of journalism so some of his students talk about him just like mad scientist energy almost which you can really imagine uh like there's a something someone talks about him about at uni he would spend 80 hours a week editing the school paper which is absolutely insane because if i spent 80 hours a week doing anything other than my degree during my degree it would have yeah it would have failed completely (laughs) <laughs> would have been, yeah, he wouldn't so have had a degree kind of yeah jeez crazy and his his work really does reflect that energy so uh in a re- very recent article mocking gender of your parties he starts as if he's saying uh dear expectant parents i am writing today with some ideas for your gender of your party that is the glorious day on which you gather your friends and relatives and colleagues to brag in a reckless melodramatically kinetic way about your astounding accomplishment of having found what your baby's genitalia will look like though in comically miniature form <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah this guy's funny this was even before this was even before no, gender this is reveal parties this is were no, that this caused is that fire piece. in california so just yeah. so, like, oh this yeah, is recent oh, okay, okay okay doing this that makes sense you know and that is his bread and butter essentially so he's he's very much valued for his wit, for his comedic timing and well-measured silliness and sarcasm, definitely sarcasm. <laughs> um, but not for music criticism or music writing in general. He's someone who will essentially apply his voice to different things and the first Pulitzer he won was centred around music. So let's look at what the Pulitzer website said about choosing my garden for the award. Quote, for his chronicling of a world-class violinist who, as an experiment, played beautiful music in a subway station filled with unheeding commuters. And that's the only quote I could find about why he got the award. None of the jurors came out about it or anything. But just off that alone, you can see there's a huge difference between like what he is generally known for and what he's been awarded for here. And again, um, he won the... Pulitzer for feature writing. So Sides to Work is only one article. But like we discussed last week, um, or last episode, um, about the Music Award, the reputation of the Pulitzer winner seems just as important as the work itself, right? We were talking about how Kendrick may not have won for Damn if his reputation as like an avant-gardist from uh, To Pimp a Butterfly didn't precede him. 
So let's talk about Weingarten's work. So uh, the winning piece is called Pearls for Breakfast and is Weingarten reporting on a public experiment created by the Washington Post, one of the finest classical musicians, musicians in the world, Joshua Bell, would pull out his violin in a subway station at rush hour and play to test the reactions of people passing by. And the question they wanted to answer through the experiment is mentioned in a list of rhetorical ones by Weingarten, and that question is, do you have time for beauty? Which I think is cool. That's a really cool idea to tackle with a with an article. So already just comparing it to what um, the pieces that have come before, we can see the kind of progression to more abstract, opinion-based stuff, which I think is awesome. Um, and Weingarten mentions that many of the people who walk past tend to be bureaucratic government workers. You know, they're in Washington. You know, this is the type of people walking by in the morning. So... It'd be interesting to gauge their casual appreciation for something more artistic. And Weingarten has just a great blend of that wonderful imagery needed to describe music, like we've pointed out a billion times on this podcast, and like we were talking about already in this in this show, uh, with his trademark wit and personality. So in the first few paragraphs, he has a, a few lines where he says, um, the violin is an instrument that is said to be much like the human voice. And in this, mu- in this musician's masterly hands, it sobbed and laughed and sang, ecstatic, sorrowful, importuning, adoring, flirtatious, castigating, playful, romancing, merry, triumphal, sumptuous. Unquote. Before going on to transcribe a short, very casual and quite funny conversation with Len- Leonard Slatkin, the music director of the National Inf- Symphony Orchestra. That. It's the same guy that Tim Page wrote link? about who moved about to what Washington. what he might have thought happened in the experiment. Yeah, yeah. St. Saint, Saint Louis so ties to all this. tone shift here from something very artistic and descriptive to this very casual, just like people, two people talking about what might happen in this experiment. And that makes the piece readable. The tone shifts feel natural. They're not jarring. But it makes the piece fun to read. I think Mickey said something about that earlier, right? It's like that kind of silliness is what's kind of needed at times. It has to be very well measured, but it brings something to life a bit more. Um, So the interviewers with passers-by during the experiment and the interjections from Joshua Bell and like his commentary on what he was doing and his how he was feeling as the crowd did or didn't react. Most For the most part, they didn't react to this world-class violinist playing some of the greatest stuff ever written in the middle of a subway station and other experts, (laughs) made us a really cool philosophical look at modern society and analysing how many people can stop and appreciate something truly beautiful. And I think that's one of the main reasons the Pulitzer Board was attracted to the piece. It's like the technical descriptions of classical music matched with the social commentary, social-ish (laughs) commentary-ish. Like, that's right up their alley, right? Something bigger than music, but also something that is very much... Uh, clearly educated and knowledgeable on the music they're talking about. But what also is right up there, Ali, is some classism, <laughs> which is uh, not missing from this piece. So <laughs> Weingarten has a line where he says, quote, his performance was arranged by the Washington Post as an experiment in context, perception and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste, unquote. And I don't like the assumption that classical music is inherently good taste, but I'm sure that's something the Pulitzer board very much identifies with, as we have seen with the kind of culture of the Pulitzer board. That may have been tongue-in-cheek, 
but I didn't quite get it. Like, the more I think about it, it's like, was that kind of a joke? Like, just to point out how, like, to be self-aware, but I'm not entirely sure about it. So I, I hesitate to, you know, label it as that. But he also talks about how, going into the experiment, they considered the people of Washington to be sophisticated enough to appreciate Bell's performance, which again is a very narrow view of sophistication, the definition of which is like Anglo-American assimilation at the end of the day, isn't it, right? And my final criticism of the piece is where it seems to place the reasoning for the experiment's outcome. It's kind of what I was talking about with Mickey earlier, and the phrase I wanted to use was sticking the landing. And Mickey saying that his piece is kind of, um, Frank Peters Jr.'s piece is kind of deviated right at the end. And it kind of leaves you feeling cold rather than wrapping everything up in a nice little book. So the outcome, like I said, was that people were, for the most part, very disinterested. They interviewed every single person, I think, who stopped and interacted in some way. And I think that was about four or five people out of the hundreds of people that walked past during the performance. And Weingarten makes passing references to people being too busy or being distracted by their iPods as a reason why they couldn't stop, which I think is a strange and weird way to sidestep <laughs> how the culture of what? American capitalism means that these people just could not afford to be late for work, you know? Yeah. It's like, it seems like a, a, a tap-in at the end of the day, right? That's something that <laughs> it's quite an easily... Or their music's just too loud in their headphones to hear. Like, it's not, like, they can't, they, like, they see someone playing violin, but they're, like, listening to, like, you know, like, Lil Uzi Vert in their headphones and the bass is slapping. So they're not going to, like, they can see someone going ham, but it doesn't hear, it doesn't sound like anything. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, yeah, exactly that. It's like, he he kind of misses what could have been, could have driven the home, driven the piece home a lot more and just missed that crucial bit of commentary that was like this could be the reason like it's not he kind of puts the blame on individual people for not yeah. no you, for not be for not like that's how it feels to me anyway think... but the commentary is half-baked which might have been intentional to let the reader kind of take the information and get from it what they will because i feel like if he did talk about the culture of American capitalism, that would have been too anti-establishment, which is ultimately anti-Pulitzer. So maybe he couldn't, and maybe the people at the Pulitzers kind of filled in what I assumed they would fill in, which is like, oh, people these days and their technology distracting them from <laughs> what's beautiful thing that's right in front of them, you know, that kind of thing. And Well... That's what, do you think, like, in this circumstance, do you think that the satire, like, the need for there to be satire distracts right. from, like, how you could have closed this piece out, right? Because it's it's funny to be like, oh, ha-ha, people and their technology. It's not so funny to be like, capitalism is crushing these people so hard that they can't stop and listen to the most beautiful music ever played for free, yeah, right? Yeah, true, like, true. That's not it, as funny. You don't laugh at I just needed that. my one-liner about Lil Uzi Vert in the headphones. <laughs> then he could have done, tied in capitalism and that, and it would have all worked out. He could have had his humor and his yeah, exactly. social commentary. And that would have been put so worthy. No, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's the, but maybe it's just the way I lean, but it felt, like, so simple just to say, oh, it's because of this. Like, that's such a cool observation to make if he had made it. Right. But he didn't, and it just kind of 
ends the piece and it's quite a long piece like he could have put some more in but it just kind of stops and it's like there's more to this like there is more of a big reason i thought that's what the piece was going to explore and the kind of like you mickey with your piece is like oh this piece has so much potential like the set up so nicely but there's no perspective and i feel like i needed more from one guy and say maybe explicitly even if his perspective was explicitly like too much technology people are distracted you know even if it was that really like yeah. boomerish <laughs> watered down opinion <laughs> right. i would have yeah. wanted it just so it wasn't so open because i think in this case it being open harms the piece ryan as the uh most scientifically ept person in our podcast do you think also the fact that it read as a unfinished science experiment <laughs> really bothered you as well <laughs> right actually maybe that's part of it maybe it's just the you way i didn't I... take in all the variables <laughs> wine garden and you know what I would say, too, as far as, like, leaning into the science side of things is I'd mm-hmm. want to see this com- this experiment done with different variables, right? Like, what if what if you have, um, you know, a world-class drummer, right, who's, like, going off? Um, or if you have Bring in a world-class saxophone player. Like, see how people respond differently to – yeah, see how people respond differently to different things. Like, ultimately, like, while the music that the guy is playing on the violin, I'm sure, is beautiful, um, it's not yeah. a very um, – active thing you know you kind of see it and you acknowledge it and then it's easy to move on but if you i mean if we bring in hip-hop into this if you bring um look look at all the time you see all those videos all the time of rappers doing like a freestyle like just pulling up somewhere and just like bringing a speaker and doing a freestyle and people crowd around that stuff because it's it's also visually like evocative um so yeah Yeah, i mean there's a really interesting variety that can be covered with this kind of concept maybe mickey's right because like when i go to something think oh it's an experiment as someone who has written so many lab reports you have to come with a conclusion you have to uh explain the phenomena right but you can't do that without accounting for all the variables very true but even in this closed situation if you wanted to consider this as the only thing it's not quite there and it's worth noting that the one, the person who interacted with the with Joshua Bell the, the most was the only person who actually recognised him as like his world class violinist. <laughs> um, of course, I think there was someone like a few shop owners who obviously just couldn't do much, but you know, tend to their shop. Um, recognised him. There's some someone who said that um, usually they just call the cops when they see performers because it drives people away from the shops, but they let him stay this time because the music sounded nice. Which is fair, and there was like, yeah, there <laughs> is undertones, there's to, that, undertones sure. to that. And there's someone else who said, um, he, someone who just stopped for three minutes and just listened. And then he said there was a few times where kids stopped and listened, but got dragged away by their parents. Which there are really cool, interesting things. There are some very classist things, but they all just feel kind of um, untied in the end. But uh, relating this to what we tend to look at on the podcast, we don't see things like this. We don't see very large-scale experiments pulled off in the podcast. Like Many publications that we cover don't have the means to pull the resources required in certain experiments like this. Uh, but even without that, I feel like there have been countless pieces we've covered on this podcast which are able to say more about the musical landscape, the social landscape, and the political landscape through the lens of music in a more nuanced and inclusive way. So, yeah. That's Gene Weingarten. <laughs>
So I, um, I haven't had an opportunity to do this yet. Uh, do you guys, should I tell my, uh, my stopping, pausing for the beauty favorite subway story (laughs) from New York? Yes. Cool. Um, so yeah, it's one of my, and I always wonder when I tell this story, if it like is going to connect because it's so impossible to translate it entirely from the feeling that it exuded in the moment. Um, but I'll try my best. Uh, I actually looked up the name of the street performer so I could make sure I got it right. Um, this was pretty early on, uh, into me living in New York, uh, which I lived, I lived in New York for like five to six years pre the pandemic happening. Um, but I had been there a few months, so I was, you know, not, I knew that obviously like subway performers existed, but I had become at least a little bit accustomed uh, maybe I was only there really like a month, month and a half, but accustomed to subway performers just existing, um, me kind of having headphones in, being at subway stops, running back and forth, commuting. Um, and I think this was at the point where I was kind of trying to decide at that time what survival job I was going to do. It was either going to be like working in a restaurant or mannying. And I think I was like coming back from like a uh, going out of one like restaurant thing and like going into seeing if I was like going to like do some under the table mannying for like some kids in Park Slope, whatever. But I was at the Court Street R train stop for anyone who's listening to podcasts who's from Brooklyn or New York or lives there. Um and as with many sub subway stops, there's columns in, in between on the platform in between the block vision down all the way down the subway. Um, so I got on the platform and I heard kind of in the semi distance, uh, guitar playing and someone singing, didn't really even think about it, kind of had something playing in my headphones. And then I, I recognized kind of semi-subconsciously or semi, well, semi-consciously that the first song had ended. I even heard maybe a few claps. I remember this very viscerally. <laughs> um, so then uh, all of a sudden there was a pause and then um, a new song started. Um, and it was one big kind of swipe down the guitar strum. And uh, the guitarist was just sitting in this pocket. It was like entrancing, like almost immediately about like five or six strums in. I like, and I was still at least a like early in. So I was definitely into the enchantment of New York as a place, but I took my headphones out slowly and did like a, a, like a wait a second. And then like looked to my right and there was a column. I couldn't see what was beyond it. Took a second, waited for a second and started hearing it and heard the person playing the song and singing. And as soon as they started singing, I was like, oh shit what the hell is that? And what happened was I was solo in this one section of the platform and I walk towards the column and I go around the side of it. And as I emerge kind of around the column onto the other side, simultaneously I see, so we're in between that next space between this column I'm walking around in the next column from the column beyond where the performer is. I see three to four people walking around that column, just like I am mirroring me at the same moment. And we meet in the middle of that platform in between the two columns, right in front of this performer, who is this guy named Gabriel Mayers. Um, and I didn't know the song at the time, uh, but the song he was playing was one more cup of coffee by Bob Dylan. And it was his own cover where that song is traditionally a little bit quicker and more folksy. He like made it a blues song with his acoustic guitar and was just sitting in the pocket and wailing. 
Um, I, I, I don't even know, like, I can't compare it even to any singer, but it was like that perfect mixture of like soul and the blues and even a little bit of like a twinge of rock. Um, and you know, like <laughs> it, it, that, that song, like it's funny with, you know, sometimes when you hear Dylan lyrics from Dylan, it feels like one thing. And then if you hear a Dylan song sung by somebody else, it just like opens it up into this whole new thing, like all along the watchtower or something like that. Um, like when Jimi Hendrix sings it. Uh, and I mean, there's countless examples of that. Um, but we all moved and kind of closed in around Gabriel Mayers. And then, and he just like his eyes closed almost the whole time, didn't flinch for a second. And then he hit that same, that same opening, like shock of a strum. He ended the song with, and just like held the, held the, uh, the neck of the guitar and just like, let it ring and kind of shook it a little bit. We all had kind of been looking at each other in this circle around him. But at that point there was like nine or 10 people who had just all converged on this one song. And when we all walked together, there was one person standing in the vicinity who had their headphones in. We all just like on this one song came around and then literally did, which never happens, right? In real life, an actual slow clap. <laughs> so, <laughs> all together, just like, holy fucking shit. This is the craziest subway performance we'll ever see in our life. And there is not a single subway performance since about a week and a half into New York that ever topped that one. Uh, now, even with that, you, like you say, like, you know, nine to ten people were around. But how many people were? Listen, man, I, I don't know. Oh, while the performance was happening. So I will say it was a generally more empty yeah. platform at that time of day. It was like midday sometimes. So it wasn't in the regular kind of commuting hours. Um, and it wasn't that court street is not necessarily the R stop specifically. is not necessarily the busiest of stops. So that helped with it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that created, that's another one of those variables, right? So it's like, you know, if you're going to get at like a high commuter time where there's a lot of people on the platform, people are definitely going to be less inclined to be like, what is that? And when there's like not as many people, so you don't have the mixture of like whatever's in your headphones or whatever reverberating from the noise people are making. And it's literally just like you in one area, a few people on the other area. And it's like 10 actual people spread out in the entirety of the platform. Plus this person playing guitar, the sound's going to reverberate. So, yeah, I mean, there again, there's a lot of different variables for that, but you know, I think at the end of the day, if you catch people at the right time, what I'm trying to say, I guess, is like a little bit in opposition <laughs> to Ryan's guy, which is, you know, there's a lot of variables of the circumstance, but given given the right thing, true beauty like that really does have the potential to make people stop. Yeah, and it feeds to Brandon's point, life just wasn't classical music, <laughs> you know. <laughs> sure. Yeah, Ryan. What do you think is the um, the the audience of this piece? Yeah, who does who so, does who does this piece matter to? Well, first of all, it's in the Washington Post. Like, you know, it's on a large scale publication, but something that it's funny because I think Gene Wildgarten he occupies such a strange space as someone who is so sarcastic and silly in one moment, but you know very uh i won't say niche because i won't say classical is very niche maybe it is now but you know 
very reserved to a very serious topic and another. It's it's a weird thing, but you know, I don't feel like this is the piece you go to if you're a typical fan of his writing. I don't think it's for that audience. I think this is for people who. I guess it's it's for classical music fans. Because even though some of the more technical stuff in the piece, he will break down and like, it is readable for someone who isn't into classical music. I think the full appreciation of what he's going for and what the purpose of the experiment is, is uh, for people who are unabashed fans of classical music and I guess a bit elitist in that sense. It's really difficult to separate it from that, I think. Right, like appeal. It appeals to that boomer yeah. perspective of like, oh, like iPods yeah. in two thousand and eight. Right? Like technology, well. ah, shake of the fist. Yeah, um, one of the things I think really interesting about just this experiment, not necessarily the piece, but the experiment, is how much and we've kind of touched on this, but how much the mm. story changes depending on who's writing it. Right, like, like given the experiment, right? You know, there's so many different ways it could be written, but I think it says something about what they wanted to say with the piece. Um, by assigning it to a satire writer, right? Like, they, you know, they clearly wanted it to have that sort of um, yeah. comedic, like, gotcha punch a little bit, um, which is interesting. You know, there's a lot of, var- like, there's just so many variables that can change this very cool experiment. I wish we could give them notes and have them do it in a <laughs> other circumstances and get a different variable and kind of put it all together. They could have, it would have been really cool if they had done it in a series. It would be cool. Yeah. Yeah, this would make a great series. Although at some point you think people might catch on and start looking for well, they should have reporters done it all in ghillie suits and the subway tunnels. Started publishing them after <laughs> but again, again, like you're talking scientifically, the whole reason to test a hypothesis is to do the experiment a billion times in diff- by different people. You know, as soon as someone publishes yeah. a paper, someone will redo the experiment to try and prove them wrong. Like that's... <laughs> <laughs> that's how the scientific community works. It's it's true though. Scientists that's how a lot are of, assholes. Uh, great scientific, um, <laughs> achievements are, are are made. You know, yeah. um, like our perception of the universe is like the reason we don't still think the Earth is in the middle of the universe is because people are like, I'm actively trying to prove you wrong, so I'm, <laughs> I'm going to prove so you funny. wrong. But um, so there, Ryan, you should write a piece about like paralleling. Uh, you know reproving scientific experiences to like rat beefs <laughs> where it's like you know people are just going back and forth <laughs> with trying to like prove the other one is wrong and like people going back and doing disses you should do like the jay and nas beat and like ether and take over with like some type of science experience the first beep of all time was neil's born albert einstein because albert einstein did not get quantum physics he was like yo <laughs> this this isn't real it doesn't make any sense and neil's Bohr was like yo i'm telling you like, this is legit. And, like, Einstein was, like, sending thought experiments. Like, how about this, though? And Boyd would be like, yeah, that makes sense because the It was, like, a real back and forth between those two. So I could I could do I'm that. Saying. I could do that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, but this piece and talking about, talking about what this would look like for hip-hop journalism, I think it would be incredible for someone to redo this, recreate it in a hip-hop sphere, or even with different oh, genres. Yeah. I think that would be incredible. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah even even locationally right like it matters where you day. do the experiment locationally like what the demo the demographic of the area with the commute. yeah i wonder if it's different people coming home 
And you almost wonder, those probably aren't, you know, those aren't details that they, that they probably overlooked. Like, so there probably is some stuff that went into like, okay, what is the mm. a reaction that we want? What is going to be funny? Um, and where can we go to, you the know, the thing is, I wouldn't say overall, get this the is reaction a funny that we piece. want. It is a departure, I think, for Weingarten. Like, I think there's his personality in flashes. But in fairness, a lot of it is told by different experts and by Joshua Bell's commentary. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting case. Interesting. So what what um how good is the like the reporting right? Like, because you said a lot of the piece is told. Well, through this a bunch of interviews with, kind uh, of interspersed, right? and the interviews of people passing by. So I think it works very well. You get a great sense of narrative. Actually, you get a great sense of what was going on during the day, and it kind of ends on that note of the one person who recognized him, uh, tipping him a twenty. <laughs> giving him the biggest tip of the day <laughs> um, but yeah yeah it, i don't know the reporting is really well i think it's a really really well done piece my oh like my main gripe is the classism and kind of the skipping over of the the tapping like the easy uh what do you call it in basketball a layup that's the one <laughs> <laughs> Now, do you think that being elevated by the recognition from the Pulitzer Prize um, makes the piece something more I than it was intended was a to be? Huge piece for them. Obviously, I wasn't there at the time to know, but I feel like you don't do something on this scale. Like uh. this, you could have made the same points, right? And like they clearly carrying out an too. experiment, right? But I think they want this to be a big thing. They wouldn't have um, put on the experiment, caught people who passed by and interacted afterwards for interviews, followed up with them, and then got an expert after that, after they'd done the experiment, to um, talk about it again. Like it's, I think this is a huge thing. Not to say that they were gunning for the pullets or anything like that. Maybe they were. But I think it's meant to be like a... a like a marquee piece in a way. Yeah. And as you mentioned too, you know, it's interesting that they put so much resources into something um, because that's, you know, something increasingly in the journalism sphere is just becoming like how um, owners of papers are increasingly like reluctant to like put a bunch of resources into something um, because it's not really tied to, you know, they didn't make more money on the piece. I feel like today this would have been a video. (laughs) Really? This would have been on YouTube rather well, it than. Reminds in... of those, oh, yeah. It reminds me of those. It reminds me of those. That's interesting, though, too. Like, that's very interesting. That they do on like late night shows where they like disguise 100%. someone who's really famous and they go and perform in the subway. Like, I've seen that. Yeah. It's so, it's so funny that that like little, like kind of <laughs> goofy little thing that late night shows did, if you put it in like a classical context, it becomes more funny. serious and Pulitzer worthy. That is funny. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. Because those are like these little sidebar, like Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah. Like, oh, we put Miley Cyrus in the subway and like gave her like a really long wig and mm-hmm. like put sunglasses on her and like no one recognized her kind of thing. Yeah. And like for the classical community, like Josh, Josh Bell is that guy. Like this is a guy who's yeah. saying like it's 10,000 quid a seat at his shows. And like, I remember there's a, pe- there's a part in the piece where he says like he dropped 3.5 million on the violin. Like, bro. <laughs> oh, my God. 
which is insane, right? So he Jeez. really is that guy for the classical community. I think there's an assumption I should kind of really like about the visa. It's not something that I really touched on, but I like that they assume that Washington was like this quote-unquote sophisticated place, you know, that would understand classical music and everyone just passed this dude by. <laughs> like, that's fantastic, I think. Yeah. I love, yeah, I love it, like, smashing their expectations. Yeah. That's cool. Like, even one guy, that one of the experts I talked to is like, oh, people will appreciate this. Like, this, this is music that, <laughs> like, oh, okay, give me one second, I'm going to find the exact quote. But he was like, I have no doubt that a crowd will form. He said that, which I think is incredible. Well, I'm just putting on the piece now. You guys say something while I get up the exact quote. So how can we draw a thread between this and Drake getting booed <laughs> off stage at Camp Flogna? <laughs> the pipeline's strong, yeah. I see, I see what you're doing there. It connects. Wrong <laughs> environment. Yeah, well, it's, it's, like the, it's like the appreciation of it, Definitely. right? Like. Well, even, there, there's even, actually, I mean, with that quote for sure, which is the like, I mean, I think with the interview with Tyler on some level, he was like, no, nah, but it's Drake. Like, people will love this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it's like, you know, even if even if you're not like a huge yeah. fan of Drake, it's like you're not seeing Drake perform for short of yeah. two, three hundred dollars a seat yeah. like in a stadium. Definitely. And like when you divide it out with the festival price, you got it for like ten bucks. And I feel, I feel the same way, like, I would like to think that, you know, if even if I don't recognize the classical composer, but I can walk by and I can be like, oh, this is kind of cool, like a dude sitting here playing a violin, and I can just kind of appreciate that, even in ignorance of why it's, right. like, like, a world-class player, right? Like, there's still some appreciation of it, even without having the context. So here's the quote from Slatkin, uh, same guy we were talking about earlier. So he said... Let's assume that he is not recognized and just taken for granted as a street musician. Still, I don't think that if he's really good, he's going to go unnoticed. He'd get a larger audience in Europe. But okay, maybe out of a thousand people, my guess is that there might be 35 or 40 who will recognize the quality for what it is. Maybe 75 to 100 will stop and spend some time listening. And one guy says, so a crowd will gather? Oh, yes. How much would he make? About $150. I think he got about 25 <laughs> And the one that's dude funny. gave him 20 bucks. I, well, that's Insane, also right? funny when you think about, like, uh, I mean, I don't know if neither of you have lived in New York, but the Showtime dancers who are, like, on the subway who do, like, the spin moves and stuff and do, like, crazy kind of, like, hip-hop b-boy stuff on the subway things, but they make way more than $25, and there's this dude who's, like, <laughs> selling out selling out the thing and they do they do like a little bit of a day's work and running from subway to subway a lot of people don't like them but they still make more than 25 dollars mm-hmm. hmm. so to sort of contextualize like all three of these winners right within the, within the grounds of hip-hop um let's let's kind of go back and you know i'm gonna pose first to mickey then i'll answer and then to ryan um what do you assume that the journalist that you covered values most in music right yeah Um, I mean, I can only base it off of the thing that felt the most passionate about his writing, which is like the, he seemed to very, be very into judging, uh, a season of a performance by an individual symphony. Um, and how like the context of that from beginning to end and how that kind of, and I guess that all kind of ties into the metaphor, but that just really was the thing that jumped out of like, he's really interested in hearing how they begin, how they've, you know 
improve from the season before and how they carry themselves throughout the season. That seemed like the thing he really was into the most. Yeah, and it also sounds like, too, like, again, just calling back to that thing about um, Frank Peters recentering the conversation from New York to somewhere else um, also seemed valuable to him. And then for Paige, you know, again, you get that running theme of, um, like, appreciation of pure, like, strictly, like, American composition, right, which is in um, opposition of the um, more widely held opinion that European classical music is vastly superior. And then Ryan, that might be more of a difficult question to answer since, like, music isn't necessarily the whole essence of the piece, but still. Yeah, but but from what... I can gather, I think what he values the most is um, technical proficiency. Because I remember there's a, uh, a quote in the piece where Bell himself was saying, don't call me a genius, I'm merely like replicating what people before me have done. Um, but one guy kind of makes the case that it takes just as much of a genius to be able to replicate it to a very high level. So I think that's the most I got in the piece from what he appreciates about music and from when he describes music he he is very invested in the emotional weight of it too but i think that comes with his appreciation for technical ability when it comes to the classical realm so to bring it back to drake again you're saying that Weingarten hates hates the conversation that says you know like that shames ghostwriting that's what you're saying if that's what you want to take from it nikki <laughs> Because, you know, the person, it's the same amount of art for the person to replicate what other people have done. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Well, now, and here's another one, another, another question for everybody. Do you think if your <laughs> journalist was on the Pulitzer jury to, that was judging Dam, do you think that they would have nominated Dam? I, I go back and forth with Paige. I like to think, you know, like as he talks about, um, he's big in the culture. Like he's big into how the music and the culture combine. Um, and he's very um, forward-thinking as far as, like, avant-gardism or, you know, exper- um, experimentalism. Um, so I'd like to think that, you know, maybe he wouldn't, but then given the input of other jurors, you know, I could see that him potentially being swayed over. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to really answer Frank Peters, but, like, you yeah. know, like, in, in 1971... Imagine hearing you know Dan I mean? in 1971. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Well, listen, he lived to 2007, so he, like, saw the, you know, the rise of hip-hop, and he definitely heard something at some in some context. So, I mean, I, I just have no idea what he thinks about hip-hop. Um, but like just basing it off of like the legitimacy he puts to classical music in 1971, I would just, (laughs) he might not even (laughs) like music. I mean, he writes with, he writes with no passion about it. No, but, um, for Weingarten, (laughs) um, he seems very (laughs) critical of anything modern from what I've read from him. And that might be completely wrong. Like the stuff that I haven't read might be very, you know, uh, um, forward thinking in that sense i think i think as a satire writer too um that sort of makes sense you know it's very easy to be critical of modern things as a form of comedy right um and as someone who leans as classist as he does in this piece i wouldn't be surprised if some of that satire was applied to hip-hop and so now what do we think you know given all this collective information what do we think you know let's try to shape what what a Pulitzer Prize for hip-hop journalism really looks like, right? You know, what what qualities 
um, can we compare and draw between, you know, what we've seen here and what we've seen in our uh, coverage of hip hop? So first of all, I want to shout out the, um, there's a recent award that's like just started for freelance writers. It's like Freelance Writers Award. I forgot what it is, but Thomas Hobbes is nominated for one. So oh, that's awesome. shout out for, to them <laughs> for acknowledging hip-hop writing, first of all. And I'd say that to say that hip-hop writing does not need the Pulitzers. As we said, with hip-hop, it isn't, hip-hop is an art form on itself and hip-hop journalism is beautiful in itself. And, you know, we, we are here to appreciate it, like, bi-weekly you know <laughs> there are right. people who really really do appreciate hip-hop writing and appreciate that it's just some of the most some of the most incredible things i've read in any form have been yeah i mean a lot of the a lot of the qualities that we've discussed but, in these pieces today i see being done in hip-hop journalism yeah. um yeah. to a greater extent in a lot of cases yeah you know and i go i go back to that ice cube quote that we used at the start of the uh of the thing like the pulitzer recognizes social justice progressiveness like you know, they recognize this in reporting. Um, well, what hip hop and by extension, hip hop journalism, right, is like Ice Cube said, holding up that mirror, right? You know, it's showing you over and over and over again in small details that your hair is messed up, right? Like, and you can't ignore that when you're presented it in a mirror because you're seeing it. And then it's, you know, you got to fix it. Yeah. Well, this go, I mean, that so ties so directly to my favorite piece from last year from NPR, which I now will be the yeah. third or fourth time I've talked about it on the podcast. Um, the one by Brianna Sounds Younger, and I'm not going to remember the exact name, but it's about like the, the sphere of Southern the rap South and the South got something to say and, you know, comparing it to like, well, it's interesting. So we've <laughs> brought up a few different things that are like in that realm, which is like, you know, the comparison of the New York as the central thing. And then there's another thing. So that's my guy's thing. And then brand the yes. Brandon, your piece. So the specific is like the, uh, uh, what was the, what's the, the cr- critical of, of the prodigy thing in your thing actually feels just in the, I don't know. I mean, in the realm of the type of criticism and the thoroughness and rounded perspective of the criticism with like a direct understanding of the topic at hand. Um, I mean, I think that aligns with that piece as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that, like you said, like hip hop journalism is absolutely covering the bases that were set up by other winners of the Pulitzer. Like that's fully proven. Right, and there's a huge, huge implication for what music says about culture and how it connects to culture, um, which journalists, right, it's their job to disseminate. Um, And as we're recognizing, you know, music writers who are writing about classical music purely, you're missing a huge, huge chunk of American culture, uh, which is the same thing we discussed in Damn, right? Like if you you try to write out hip-hop or try to write out jazz – as distinguished American music, you are missing the point of the American part of the prize. That's it. Final statement. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, when we talk about what can a piece, a hip-hop journalism piece that's worthy of winning the Pulitzer look like, I think we've covered so many on the podcast already. I think that they already exist in swathes. In terms of something that would be submitted now, and that the poets will seriously consider, it's so difficult to tell because the one thing we've established is that there is no... I mean, there is consistency in the Pulitzers, but they can just say, we want this to win this year, and then they'll build something around that. It feels like 
the winner of the poetry is the will. Just saying the the winner of the poetry is the will oh, of the also, poetry board. No, go ahead and finish. Sorry, finish. Can you hear that really loud car? <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's also, you know, I, I want to know, like, has hip-hop journalism even been sub- submitted? Is it something that people have even considered? Um, because like, you know, like we, we mentioned on the first episode, we read years ago how Yo Phillips had mentioned, like, oh, like, I'd love to win a Pulitzer. But then when we interviewed him, he laughed it off. He was like, oh, like, that was foolish. Like, that's not a realistic thing, right? And I think that says something. You know, if writers as talented and great as this, like, don't even consider that they are in the running for it, um, I think that says a lot about how hip-hop should and maybe does view institutions that award prizes, like the Pulitzer, um, which can extend to the Grammys, too. And the Rock Hall of Fame, right? It can extend to a lot of these institutions. Yeah, and PSA for anyone who thinks their work is worthy of Pulitzer, it's 75 quid. <laughs> it's 75 dollars <laughs> yeah. to submit to the Pulitzer, so might as well go for it, you know? Brianna Younger. Yeah. <laughs> and it's free to submit to In Search of Sauce. We'll talk about it. We'll love it. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, does, it, does anybody yeah, except, have any Except the Pulitzer gives you $10,000 as an award. <laughs> right. And we cannot give you anything. Except our our love and our respect and our voice. Sharing. All right. Is that a wrap? Is that a wrap on the on the Pulitzer episode? Mickey, you want to close us out since you since you've got the uh the big energy. It's a wrap. Um Yeah. Uh yeah, you know, subscribe to Central Sauce. Uh Leave some comments in Apple Podcast. Share the podcast everywhere. Um, yeah, let us know what you think. And if you're, like Brandon already kind of stated, if you're a journalist with a piece from a smaller publication you think we may have missed that you th- would love for us to discuss on the podcast, please send it over and we'd love to read it and potentially um, talk about it. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Search of Source featured Brandon Hill, Mikhail Back, and Marion Gore of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode is edited by me, Charlie Taylor, of the Fifth End Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked up by Basti, thanks to Chop Records for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source Fifth End Podcast Network production. Links with Basti, Chop Records, Central Source, Fifth Element, and content covering the episode could all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.